0: If you would go ahead and turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter seventeen, Deuteronomy chapter seventeen. be in verses 14 through 20. The people of Israel are about to, they're about to enter the promised land, they're going to grow as a nation and they won't have a king for a good long time. But in this passage this morning we have God's instructions for a future king. Let's pray and we'll read verses 14 through 20. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, you have taught us so much. Please, God, continue to give us ears to hear the humility, Lord, to tremble before your word. Help us to see your glory God, help us to examine our hearts. I pray, God, through the reading and preaching of your word, that you would tear down the plans of the enemy. That all across this room, Lord, you would tear down trust in self, trust in the flesh. That you would tear down schemes of sexual immorality or, or covetousness or the love of money. And you would grow us, God, grow us as your people to be those that cling to your word. God, please help us as we meditate on your word together. Thank you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause a people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, You shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. Approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. I want you to notice a few things at the very beginning of this passage. In verse 14, I want you to notice the when. He tells them, Moses tells them, when you come into possession of the land and when you say, and he tells them what they're going to say. When you say, I'll set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Now, how did Moses know with such surety that these people would possess the land and that they would say these words? How did he know that they would say these words, set a king over us like like all the nations? And he knows this because he's getting it from our God, who is the omniscient one, the one who knows all things. There's not one piece of knowledge hidden from his sight. He knows everything. He even knows the future, he even knows what these people are going to do. Now, did these things come to pass? And you could go, you could read the next book of the Bible and see, yes, they came into possession of the land. You can go read 1 Samuel chapter 8 when you go read there you've got over 400 years later and yes the people did exactly what he said they said they said please set a king over us It's when Samuel was ruling as a judge and he says they said your sons aren't walking with God so so won't you set a king over us like all the nations that are around us they said these exact words in first Samuel chapter 8 verse 4 and 5 God knows exactly what they're going to say. Don't miss a chance to glory in the omniscience of God. Our God is the God that knows everything. And you can trust the God that no piece of knowledge is hidden from His side. You can trust a God like that. Nothing surprises Him. Nothing has ever caught Him him off guard. He's our omniscient God. Now this section, as I said, is about the appointment of a king in Israel. But we should think about what's being said here as far as the appointment of a king goes as an allowance, not as a command. If you notice, verse 15 says, you may, not you must. It says you may indeed appoint this king. Not you must, it's it's an allowance, not a command. One commentator said it like this. This section is permissive rather than prescriptive legislation it does not command monarchy but it allows for it and I would say this this allowance that God gives here of a king is an an exaltation of another attribute of God God's forbearance God's mercy is on display in the allowance of a king and let me try to explain that for just a minute In verse 14, what do we see is the reason that they desire a king. What's the reason that they will give for wanting a king? Well, verse 14 tells us that they might be like all the nations that are around them. They want to be like all the nations that are around them. Now, Surely you know your Bible well enough to know that that's not a good motivation. To want to, be like, to want to be like the world around you, to want to be, to be like the nations that are all around you. That's not a virtue. That's not a good motivation. And God says this, and then that's exactly what happens. And I actually want to read to you a couple places from when this happens in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I want you to notice the response of Samuel and the response of God to them asking for this. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5. They said, "Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." So this is over 400 years later, and this king they're at, they're doing what God said that they would do. They're asking for this king and they gave the same motivation, like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel When they said, give us a king to judge us. This thing displeased Samuel. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey. Here's the allowance. Listen to the allowance. Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And that's the pattern in 1 Samuel 8, 1 Samuel 9, 1 Samuel 10. God says that they're asking for this king to be like all the nations is a rejection of God as king. This is an allowance, not a command, as we read it in Deuteronomy chapter 17. You may indeed have this king, but not you must. So in Deuteronomy 17, we have the law of the king. We have an allowance, not a command. And it's an allowance of mercy. It's an allowance of forbearance. And here's what I mean by God's attribute of forbearance and mercy being put on display here. Here's what I mean. God knows his people are going to make some dumb decisions. And they do. And he makes laws that will guide them even in their dumb decisions. He makes laws that would actually, if obeyed, would pull back on some of the consequences of their dumb decisions. This allowance is an expression of God's mercy to them, of God's forbearance with for them. Two quick and easy takeaways would be: brothers and sisters, beware. Of dumb decisions rooted in, I want to be like the world. I want to be like the nations. I want to be like the people around me. James 1.27 says, pure and undefiled religion is what? Well, it says two things there. And one of the things it says is to remain unstained from the world. This motivation, I want to be like those around me. No. When they're coming into the land, God said, according to the doings of the land of Egypt, from where you came, you are not to do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you, you're not to do. But you're to serve the Lord your God. He's the one that you look to. Beware of this motivation to be like the world, to be like the nations. And a second quick takeaway would be this. Please rejoice in God's forbearance and mercy. How many? If you, if you, Oh, if you could count. <laughs> if you could just get them all in a journal somewhere, not that they would fit. All the... the the hard-hearted and ignorant decisions that we have made. And God has been so kind and so forbearing and so merciful to us. If we could just count it all up and see God's patience with us. Now, the rest of this passage, okay, so here's this allowance for a king. You're going to ask for it in the future. Here's this allowance for the king. Well, the rest of this passage is describing who this king must be. If you're going to have a king, what must the king be like? And I'm going to give you a summary here. Just three statements in summary of what this passage teaches from verse 15 to verse 20. This is the summary. The king, he must not be of the world. He must not covet war horses, women, or wealth and he must be a man of the word. So one, two, three, he must not be of the world. He must not covet war horses, women, or wealth. And number three, he must be a man of the, world, of the word. So I want to defend those three statements, those summary statements. I want to defend that from the text. I'll show you that in the text. So number one, the king must not be of the world. You see that in verse 15. Look at it. It says, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. He must not be of the world. He must be from among your brothers. He cannot be a foreigner. He must not be of this world. Now, this is not God's prejudice towards foreigners. That's not the reason for this. If you remember, we, we read last week, chapter 10, verse 18 and 19, that God loves the sojourner, God loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. This is not prejudice towards the foreigner. Consider Isaiah 56 about the coming of Christ. Listen, it says, let the foreigner, Isaiah 56, verse 3, let the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Excuse me, it says, don't let him say that. Don't let, the, don't let the foreigner say, the Lord has separated me from his people, not the foreigner that's joined himself to the Lord. So this is not prejudice against the foreigner. Jesus was sent as a savior, not only to Israel, but to foreigners all over the earth, all from every nation. He died for their sins. He invites them so that the foreigner can, as this verse says, join himself to the Lord and never have to say, I'm separate from the people of God. So the motivation here is not God's prejudice against the foreigner. So then what's this restriction about? He can't be a man of the world. It's about making sure that the king has one God and that his God is the one true God, Yahweh. It's about keeping foreign gods out of the kingdom. Keeping foreign gods out of the kingship and out of the kingdom. It's just true, you can't deny it. A man's theology affects his politics. And to be a king in Israel, you have to be a worshiper of the one true God. He must not be of the world. Number two, we'll spend a little more time here. He must not covet war horses, women, or wealth. And you see that in verses 16 and 17. Let me try to explain that. Now, why do I mention the king must not covet war horses? Well, look at it in verse 16. That's what it says. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you you shall never never again return that way now this is not about God hating equestrians it's not the purpose of this the acquisition of many horses is about preparing for war Acquiring many horses to prepare yourself for war. Horses and chariots are like the tanks of the ancient world. The future king is being warned about trusting in horses and chariots rather than trusting in God. He's being warned about trusting in the arm of the flesh rather than trusting in the God that will deliver him. Now I want you to notice the comment about Egypt, and this is how we know this is what he's talking about. The comment about Egypt says, Don't acquire many horses for yourself or return to Egypt to get those horses. That's what it says here in what we just read. I told you you shall not return that way again. So again, this is about not trusting, not trusting in the or, or about trusting in the power and protection of God instead of trusting in the power and protection of Egypt or war horses or chariots. Now, I say that mainly because of this. Isaiah picks up on this. Listen to Isaiah 31, verse 1. Catch the connection here. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they're many, and in horsemen because they're very strong. You see what He's saying? Woe to you about going to Egypt, relying on horses, trusting in the arm of the flesh, but, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. In other words, in the Law of the King in Deuteronomy 17, the people are being reminded, get you a king that looks to God for deliverance and for protection. Get you a king who doesn't rely on horses or the power of the flesh. Now it also mentions here that the king is not to covet women. You see that in verse 17? 17, look at it. And he shall not acquire many wives. For himself. Now while we're here, let's just highlight something for clarity for just a moment. Although there were, very, there were many instances in the Old Testament where men shame, shamefully took on to themselves multiple wives, even though that's true, this was never God's design. It was never God's design. He's never approved a perversion of biblical marriage. Jesus would go on to make that clear later on in Jesus' teaching. He would make that clear as he refers to Genesis 1. And Jesus says this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Not the many, but the two. But we also see it right here very clearly in the law to the king. God's requirement for the king... The king who's supposed to represent all Israelites, how they should live their lives as well. And here's the example. You shall not acquire many wives for yourself. So although we see that happening in the Old Testament, never approved by God. Never never approving this perversion. So like a pastor, 1 Timothy chapter 3 says a pastor is commanded... One of the qualifications is he must be a one-woman man. Even so, it was for the king of Israel, one-woman man. Now, why would the king, why would the king desire multiple wives? And one reason obvious. But first, let me mention the first reason. One is for prestige. This would have been uh, motivated by pride, by arrogance. All the great kings have a harem of wives. The more wives, the greater the king. This is in the culture that they lived in. This coveting of prestige, this pride, can cause you to do some wicked things. Some wicked things. Now a second motivation, more obvious, would be the motivation of sexual lust. The accumulating of many horses was a trust issue. The accumulating of many wives is a lust issue. Now, it also mentions here, they're, also not to, they're not to acquire many horses. It's a trust issue, not to acquire many wives. They're also not to acquire excessive silver and gold. They're warned about coveting wealth. Look at it in verse 17. At the end of verse 17 says, Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. He should not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Riches can be so dangerous. Riches can be so dangerous. Proverbs 119 says, Such is the fate of all who are greedy for money. It robs them of life. This love for money, it robs them of life. Riches themselves are not bad, and being rich in and of itself is not sinful. But the king of Israel must know this danger. The king of Israel, you must know this danger. Listen to the danger. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Verse 13. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun riches kept for their owner to his own hurt to his own hurt riches are a dangerous thing and if the king knows this and the the future king feels this in his bones that these this excessive silver and gold it's a dangerous thing for my soul it's a dangerous thing for the nation what will he do well the text is clear deuteronomy 17 17 it says it nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold These are the warnings given to the future king. Now, there's a lot at stake in these warnings. Don't miss the phrase in verse 17. You see, it says, lest his heart turn away. There's a lot at stake here. Heed these warnings, lest your heart turn away. Lest you walk away from this in your heart towards God. Now in this culture, these, these things we're talking about would have all been marks of success, marks of prestige for a king in this culture. War and women and wealth. These are marks of success as a king. Or to put it into a modern phrase, sex, money, and power. Sex, money, and power. These are things that would mark you off as a king that's successful, a king that's worthy. But God makes himself so clear here, it shall not be so in Israel. Not in Israel. That's how it is in the world, but not here. God makes it plain in Deuteronomy 17. The king in Israel is to, is to be a man whose heart belongs to God. A humble man. A God-fearing man whose heart burned for God, who was faithful to one wife, who worshiped God and not riches, not money, who trusted God and not war horses. That's the king in Israel. Now let's make a little bit of application here for ourselves. We ought to feel warned by these things. The same temptations that have ruined kings are temptations that have ruined fathers. They've ruined men and women, young and old. They've ruined parents. The same temptation that have ruined kings, have ruined people like us. We should feel warned by these things. If it were up to the world and the flesh and the devil, you may have started strong, but you wouldn't finish strong. You may have started well, but you wouldn't finish well. Did you know it's possible? And you can see it in the lives of the kings who ignored these things. Did you know it was possible to start well and then to end your life dragging Jesus' name through the dirt? And that, that ought to be a felt warning for us. As the kings are being warned, we ought to feel the same warning. I want to encourage you to let Solomon's life, maybe I'll give you some homework here, let Solomon's life be a warning to us all. This man started well. Do you remember his prayer? Solomon said things like this. "I'm just a child, God. I don't know how to go out or come in. God give, God, give me wisdom that I might know how to, I don't know how to lead these people. Give me wisdom. That's how Solomon started. King Solomon started that way. But how did he finish? And the homework is go read 1 Kings 10 and 1 Kings chapter 11. And it tells you that he did these exact things. He acquired many horses for himself. It tells you that. It says he, he acquired many wives for himself. It tells you that. It tells you that he acquired excessive silver and gold. Go read it for yourself. And he did not resist these temptations. And therefore, what was the result in his life? I've got to read this to you. And I want you to feel the warning in your bones as I read this to you. Here's a man that started well, and he did not heed these warnings. And listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse verse 4. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly, wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for chamash the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. Listen to this. Who had appeared to him twice. Man, God made himself known to this man. And he started well, but look how he finishes. Feel the warning of that. It's not just a warning for kings. These same temptations ruin people's lives and they start one way and they finish another. Brothers and sisters, feel the warning of that. And so with that warning being felt, let me just ask a few hopefully probing questions. Number one, are you living a life of trust in God or trust in the flesh? Listen to this verse again. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Don't just think about Egypt. And rely on horses who trust in chariots because they're many and in horsemen because they're strong. Do you feel it? Don't worry about horses and chariots and Egypt, but trust in the things of this life, the things of their flesh, in themselves, in other men, because that's strong. And what do they not do? It says... They do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Heed this warning. Are you living a life of trust to God or trust in the flesh? Second, are you guarding yourself against lustful desire? Lustful desire. Bodhi Bauckham is pretty well known for saying this. The wisest man in the Bible failed to sexual sin. The strongest man in the Bible fell to sexual sin. And the godliest man in the Bible fell to sexual sin. For me to think I'm, I'm above falling into this sin is to think I'm wiser than Solomon, stronger than Samson, and godlier than King David. Feel the warning of that. Know your own heart. Know your own, know your own capabilities if left to yourself without the help of God. And listen, the scripture in the New Testament says, flee Flee sexual morality. You must guard yourself from this saint-destroying temptation. May it never be said of you that you started well, but because of immorality and sexual lust that you ended dragging Jesus' name through the dirt. Third probing question, are you protecting your heart from the love of money? Hear this fresh. Those who desire to be rich. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. This stuff is dangerous. For the love of money is a root Of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. They started well and they finished. They didn't finish well. And they pierced themselves with many pangs. When riches increase, know the danger. Don't love money, don't store it up. Give it away and protect your soul from this dangerous, dangerous love of money. Now what else must the king be? What else must this king be? Third, he must be a man of the word. And you can see that in verses 18 through 20. So he's been told what not to do, what to watch out for, the warnings. And now we get the one and only positive command here and it's that he must be a man of the word. Verse 18 through 20. Look at verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. I love that. There he is. It's a look into the future when the king's gonna sit on his throne. And when he sits there on his throne, there he is on his throne. It's been made clear. This is what you're not supposed to do. Okay, but what am I what am I supposed to do as the king? There he is on his throne. He's He's leading leading the kingdom of God's people. What is the one, one positive command that's going to be given to him? And it might surprise you, it's read your Bible. It's read the law. Read the scripture. Verse 18, keep going. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved approved, by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life. So what's he supposed to do? What's well, that one positive command? It's, it's get you a written copy of God's word, your own written copy of God's word. This is not a call for the king to journal his feelings. This is a call for the king to get a copy of the written word of God. And make sure it's a good copy, king. It says here, approved. No changes, no additions, no subtractions. Because the king is not supposed to shape the book. The book is supposed to shape the king. Make sure it's a good copy. And what does he do with it? It says, it shall be with him. The book, should be, the, the book. his copy, shall be with him. Make the book your intimate friend, O King. And this is how God's word should be to us all. Like an intimate friend. Now what does it mean to make the book, the word of God, your intimate friend? Just listen to Proverbs 7, verse 1. Keep, keep my words, treasure up my commandments within you keep my commandments and live keep my teaching as the apple of your eye hold on to it protect it bind them on your fingers the words bind them on your fingers write them on the tablet of your heart say to wisdom you are my sister and call inside your intimate friend Let it be with you, the king. That's the command of the king. Get your own copy of the law and let it be with you. Let it be like an intimate friend to you and read it, it says. He tells the king, read it. How often should the king read it? It says here, all the days of his life. All the days of his life. Not some of the days. Not even just most of the days. All the days of his life, all the weekdays, all weekends, good days and bad days, Not not just when things get hard and the going gets tough, but always good days and bad days, busy days, vacation days. Read it all the days of your life when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it through thick and thin, making the Bible your intimate friend. All the days of your life, read it. He tells the king here. Now, how interesting is this to you? That this is the one positive command. Can you imagine it 400 plus years later? And, and, and you get that first king appointed in Israel. And somebody comes to him. Hey, hey, Saul. Saul, did you know that in Deuteronomy, there's some instructions for this thing you've just been appointed for? And you know, remember Saul at that time, he's nervous He's anxious. He, he, uh, he's small in his sight at that point. Where's it at? Okay, show, show me. What is it? What is it I'm supposed to do as the king? And can you, can you imagine him getting to Deuteronomy 17, you know, yanking out the scroll, and he's about to read his duties to lead the people of God in this kingdom. And what does he hear? Read the word every day. Man, that's interesting, isn't it? King. Read your Bible daily. One positive command. Reminds me of of Mary and Martha. Remember that story? Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to His Word is what it says. She's sitting at His feet, listening to His Word. Mary's busy doing all kinds of stuff that looks like serving. Excuse me, Martha. Martha says, Jesus, please tell Mary to get up and help me. Jesus says, what? What? Mary has chosen the one thing needful. And it's not going to be taken away from her. What was she doing? Sitting at his feet, listening to his word. And if the king of Israel obeys this command to read the scripture, read the law all the days of his life, what will it produce in him? What will it produce in the king that that obeys this? We'll look at it in our text. Starting in verse 19. Now, I want you to think about this. That it says, read it all the days of your life, that, and you got a that times three. And it gives you three, three um, things that will be produced if he obeys his command. Verse 19, it shall be with him, his copy of the law. He shall read in it all the days of his life. Here it is. Number one, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. It will produce in him the fear of the Lord. Do you know how important the fear of God is? I mean, I would just commend you to a study. Look up every place in your Bible where it mentions the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, and see how massively important that is. Oh, the king says, maybe the king says, how can I cultivate this fear of God in my soul? Read the word all the days of your life. Also, verse 20, number two, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers. What does it produce in the king? That his heart may not be lifted above his brothers. It'll produce humility. Humility. Do you know how important humility is in the Bible? I commend you to a study. Every place where you see lowly or humble or humility. Every place where you see pride and how pride is a root of all other sins. Go do that and see how important humility is. How does the king, how does he cultivate this in his heart? Read the word. All the days of your life. And lastly, keep going in verse 20. What does it produce? It says, and that he might not Turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. It will produce perseverance. Perseverance. Imagine the king saying, I don't want to fall away like Solomon did. I'm starting well and I want to finish well. I don't want to finish like Solomon. I want to finish well. I don't want to be given over to the love of money or given over to sexual immorality. I don't want this to happen to me. Well, one of God's tools to hold His saints and persevere them is a daily feeding upon His Word. And that's true for the King. Daily feeding upon His Word. Now, let's make some application here. I'm sure you already have made some. In our family, kind of uh, it happens often where we sit down for dinner, and I've got this amazing food in front of me, and I say to the family, y'all, we get to eat like kings. This is crazy. We get to eat like kings. And I'm trying to remind my family how awesome this, this uh, meal put in front of us is. We get to eat like kings. What does it mean to spiritually eat like kings? It's a daily kingdom feast on God's Word. According to this passage, daily Bible reading is a royal duty. It's a feast for kings. Now you have, most of you here, you know, write for himself a copy. Most of you here, I believe, have your own copy you got your own copy. It's probably sitting in your lap right now. Praise God for your copy of the written words of God. It shall be with Him. Is it with you? Is the Word of God an intimate friend to you? This is a royal duty. And you're a royal priesthood in the kingdom of Christ. Is is the Word of God an intimate friend to you? He shall read it all the days of His life. Are you in a habit of daily, daily, feasting on God's word like a king this is not an option for Christians you need God's word and you don't just need it on a bookshelf you need it in your heart in your soul there's a prayer in Psalm 119 verse 10 and the prayer sounds like this let me not wander from your commandments you could say it another way help me finish well let me not wander from your commandments. Let me finish well. And the next verse says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That I might not sin against you. So brothers and sisters, let me very, very practically warn you, encourage you. Let me warn you, let me encourage you in light of these things. Do not minimize the importance of daily reading God's Word. Don't minimize the importance of daily Bible reading. This one positive royal command. The proverb says, Cease listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. You fail to seek God in His Word daily, it will affect your character. It will affect your relationship with God. It will affect your marriage. It will affect your parenting. It will affect everything if you cease listening to instruction, if you cease seeking God like this, like this feast of the King. Maybe you started well, but if you cease feasting daily on God's Word, you will not end well. Now, don't let anything stop you from this daily feast on God's Word. And in fact, I want to encourage you with this little quote from one of the commentators I read. I hope this refreshes you in in your pursuit of God's Word. He said this, This book is designed to be read daily. And not the sort of reading that is hurried, distracted reading. With words coming out of the head almost as quickly as they go, as they went in, rather be encouraged by this. The kind of reading God intends for His servant is meditative, slow, unhurried, enjoyable, feeding on the text. At the pace of the text rather than the pace of the world. Pondering God's words. Rolling them around in your mind long enough to get a sense of them on the heart. That's how you eat like kings. Now I want to close out our time with this question. In Deuteronomy 17 we have the law of the king. The law of a future king. Did there ever arise a king in Israel, that met the standard that's laid out here. Did a a king ever meet up to this standard? We know Saul didn't. He was removed. Well, David was a man after God's own heart, but you remember he acquired many wives for himself. He had a son, Solomon, in that lineage of, of, of kings, We've already considered his failures. Solomon had a son, Rehoboam. You can go read about him. He trusted in the arm of the flesh when he should have trusted in his God. And Rehoboam had a son who was a king and and on it went down the lineage. And you could keep tracing out that royal lineage and what would you find? One failure after another failure after another failure. Many of them started strong, but they didn't finish well they started strong but they didn't finish well but as you know there was one and you can read about him in Matthew chapter 1 in that glorious genealogy that takes you from King David and Solomon and Rehoboam and his son and his son and his son and all these kings that never fully met up to the standard and it lands you right on Jesus the Christ The only one who has ever, the only king who has ever perfectly obeyed the Father. Jesus said this, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. You remember to Jesus, all of the riches, all of the riches were offered to Him from the prince of darkness. But He never acquired much wealth for Himself. In fact, the Scripture says the Son of of Man has no place where he may lay his head. And not only did he not multiply wives for himself, but he didn't have a wife at all, except one spiritual bride that he's perfectly faithful to. He is the one who conquered, but he didn't need war horses. Scripture says this, Through death, through death, He destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And delivered those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Conquered not with war horses but by His humility and laying down His life so that through death He destroyed Satan and delivered us who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus started well and he finished well. You remember maybe the maybe the the hardest battle in Gethsemane. You remember it? He's in Gethsemane. What did he know was coming? He started well. He's done so well up to this point. But what does he know is, is coming? That if that if I'm gonna redeem a people, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come underneath the wrath of God. I'm gonna come underneath their punishment. He knows he's about to go to the cross and suffer something worse than crucifixion. He knows it. He's about to absorb the wrath of God for his people. And how does it make him feel? He's sweating great drops of blood, it says. If there was any moment to retreat, this would have been it. This would have been the moment not to finish well. And yet, what does Jesus do instead? (laughs) Not my will, Father, but your will be done. Man, that's a sweet prayer. Not my will, but your will be done. And he set his face like flint. And he went to the cross. And he finished well. And he suffered. And he died for sinners like us. Three days later, risen. A time after that, ascended. Seated on high. The only king that has fulfilled perfectly these laws. He finished well. Let's give him praise. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for Christ, our King. Our perfect King. Thank You for our conqueror, our deliverer. God, we give You praise for King Jesus. And I pray that You would renew in our hearts our service to Him, our devotion to Him, our adoration of Him, God. Fill our hearts with praise for King Jesus. You're worthy, Lord. Lord Jesus, you're worthy. And God, I pray that our devotion to, to our King would show itself, Lord. God, let it show itself in the way we hate and flee sexual morality, in the way we hate the pride of trusting in ourselves and not you, in the way we hate the love of money, God, and don't bow down to it like the world does. God, keep us from these temptations. Keep us to the end. God, help us to show our devotion to our King in the way we love Your Word. Help us to feast on Your Word daily like kings. And God, I pray that none of us here would neglect it. For any reason, Lord. Make us a people, Lord, that feast on Your Word daily. And Lord, through that, I pray You would increase in us a fear of You in a humility, and you would cause us to make it to the end. We love you so much and thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.